this uh, teaching related to it. And if you're with us here today and uh, you don't have a Bible, there's men coming up the aisle right now. And if you just signal them in a, and get their attention, they'd be glad to get a Bible into your hands so you can follow along with us this morning. Matthew chapter 24, beginning in verse 1. Then Jesus went out and he departed from the temple. And his disciples came up to show him the buildings of the temple. And Jesus said to them, Do you not see all these things? Verily, verily, I say to you, Not one stone shall be left here upon another that shall not be thrown down. Now while he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us when will these things be? And what will be the sign of your coming in the end of the age? Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. And you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. See that you're not troubled. For all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom, and there will be famines, pestilence, that is, disease and earthquakes in various places, all these are the beginning of sorrows. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray and just want to give you thanks today for Dr. Bigelow. We thank you for his love for you. We thank you for the quiet yet very powerful way that your Holy Spirit flows forth from his innermost being as a torrent of living water. We thank you for the education that you've given to him, Lord, the expertise and the aptitude that you have given to him and how you have used him to bless so many, Lord. And then here in a way that he could never know in medical school or other times to realize that in all of this you are preparing him also for a trip to Cambodia to meet needs that are there, Lord, among people that you love so much and want them to know your truth. And we pray, Lord, that a great hedge of your protection by your Holy Spirit would be around his spirit and around his health as he prepares, Lord, to leave, and then that you would bless him so greatly on that trip. We pray that he would enjoy wonderful communion and fellowship with you and that you would allow him to process all that he's in the middle of minute by minute, Lord, and that you would use him for your glory. We commend him, Lord, to the greatness of your power and your wisdom and your love this morning. We thank you for Dean. We love the time that we get to have with him as he's renewing the visa each year and all. And, and so we hate to see him go in the natural, but we're glad he's serving you in the, in the area of great need in the world that he's in, in Moscow. And so give him a safe trip back. Tie up all the loose ends that are required in his life before he leaves in these final few days. And then continue to bless your work through him there in Moscow. We pray you bless your word to our hearts today. That we wouldn't just be listening to a bunch of words that I would say, Lord. But that our hearts would have that expectation and the, uh, the sense of need to hear your voice, Lord, from your throne this morning. And for you to bring perspective and to bring edification, Lord, and even exhortation to our lives today. So speak to us through your word. Blessed as it's being taught all over this city, Lord, we live in and we serve in. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Matthew's Gospel, chapters 24 and 25, record what is known as Jesus' Olivet Discourse. It is called the Olivet Discourse because he taught it while sitting on the Mount of Olives uh, to his disciples. It is the second longest of his recorded uh, sermons in all of the Gospels, the longest uh, sermon being the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus is, as we remember, and literally the final handful of days of his life before he is going to go to the cross and uh, die on that cross for the forgiveness of our sins and the sins of, of mankind. And the context of Jesus' sermon here is that we come to Jesus at the end of 
a very, very long day. Early that morning, he had made his way from the city of Bethany, which is just a stone's throw away from Jerusalem over to the east uh, on the other side of the Mount of Olives. And as he came into the area of the, ta- the temple, he found a place on the temple courtyard and he began to teach. And as he began to speak for God and began to teach God's Word, the Bible says that uh, this group of people began to gather to him to listen to him, his disciples and others that were in the area, until finally the crowd that assembled around him was not only described as a multitude, but multitudes plural. There's a huge group of people listening to what it is that he's teaching on that morning. And the leaders of the great three great sects of Judaism at that time, the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Herodians, sent representatives one after another in an attempt to uh, interrupt Jesus' teaching, pose a question to him with the idea that he would be trapped uh, by the, the sneakiness of the question that they had asked, a controversial uh, a question on a controversial issue and that somehow it would blunt his growing popularity there even in the city of Jerusalem. And each time they attempt to trap him and not only publicly humiliate Jesus but more importantly stumble his followers and those that were seeking to become his followers. And each time they did it they were spectacularly unsuccessful. And all of this then as a result of, of this and as a result of Jerusalem's general rejection of him, its hostility toward him, its general unwillingness to recognize him as their promised Messiah. In verses 37 through 39, Jesus prophesied of a future judgment that would come upon Jerusalem that would result in the desolation or the destruction of the temple. And so they're leaving now at the end of the day Jerusalem proper, they're leaving the Temple Mount proper, and they're making their way now on the way to cross the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives and then once again to Bethany. Jesus never spent the night in his final week of his life. He never spent a night in Jerusalem. He slept in Bethany at the home of three friends that were there, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And as Jesus is and the disciples are making their way from the temple area, we're told there in verses 1 and 2 that the disciples showed Jesus the buildings. And Mark's account of this event indicates that they were especially impressed in showing him the great stones that had been used in the construction of the temple. Mark declares, and then as he went out of the temple, one of the disciples said to him, Teacher, see the, what manner of stones and what buildings are here. The word show there in the original language, it means literally to call out or to point to. And basically what they're communicating to Jesus here is, Jesus, have you considered the size of the stones that have been used in the construction of this temple? Because if you have noticed how large these stones are, you might want to reconsider what you've just said about its destruction. It was a polite way of giving Jesus a chance to revise or soften his prophecy about the destruction of the temple. Because in the minds of the disciples, it seemed impossible that the temple could ever be destroyed. The temple at that time was known as Herod's Temple because it was named after the Roman governor who had it built. And Herod, the Roman governor, was a master builder. Everything he built, he was determined that it would outlive the pyramids. That was the scale, the scope, the grandeur. And the reason that he built everything that he built with the idea that this will outlive the pyramids was because he wanted for eternity his name, the name of Herod, as the master builder of these things to be on people's lips all the way through the ages. Now his name is on my lips today, but for a different reason. 
But that's the reason that he, uh, the, the, the thinking that he had behind his building. He was an egomaniac. And in fact, though, uh, to give him credit as a builder, if they had not closed the list of the wonders of the ancient world before Herod's time, he might have added three buildings to that list. Masada, the great fortress that is there today that you can visit. The Herodian, a, a man-made mountain that exists in Israel to this day that, that it encased a palace. And then Herod, in his mind, the single greatest accomplishment in terms of building that he was going to do, uh, the masterpiece, was going to be this Jewish temple in Jerusalem. Even the Jewish Talmud acknowledged that the temple was spectacular. The rabbis wrote of it, He who has not seen Herod's building has never in this life seen a truly grand building. The great Jewish historian Josephus wrote, Viewed from without, the sanctuary had everything that could amaze either mind or eyes overlaid all round with stout plates of gold. The first rays of the sun it reflected so fierce a blaze of fire that those who endeavored to look at it were forced to turn away as if they'd look straight into the sun. To strangers as they approached it, uh, seemed in the distance like a mountain covered with snow, for any part of it that was not covered with gold was dazzling white." And Herod began the great temple, the building of it, in 20 B.C., and the work on it would continue until 64 A.D. And so at the time of Jesus, all of Israel had been watching the progress of this building of this magnificent temple for over 50 years. The temple and its grounds covered an area of 13 acres. The, our church property is about 16 acres, to give you a, a, a feel for the size of it. Much of the temple was built of white limestone on the outside, covered then with marble and with gold. Some of the stones, and this is hard to get it in your mind, but some of the stones that were used in the building and the construction of the temple, 40 foot long, 12 feet wide, 20 feet tall, weighing over 165 tons, one stone in the building. The stones that were used to build the retaining wall to allow the temple to be built on a flat temple mount, some of those stones which are uncovered and you can see when you make a visit to Israel today weighed over 600 tons. They still wonder to this day the mechanisms that were used in order to get these things under human power into place. It is really was a marvel of the ancient world. And yet, not only is Jesus unmoved by their visual argument, he went on in verse 2 to declare that the destruction of the temple would be so complete that not one stone would be left upon another. The disciples are head over heels in awe of the temple. And Jesus is not impressed with the temple at all. I suppose when you come from heaven, <laughs> it's a little hard to be impressed with. Have you seen my house, Lord? He likes it because we live there. And essentially what Jesus was declaring to those disciples was, look at those stones. They seem so sure. They seem so immovable. They seem so permanent, as if they're going to outlive the ages. That's their appearance. That's what everybody thinks of them. But don't you, as my disciples, think of them in that way. The destruction of this temple will be so great, it will be so complete, that not one of those stones that you're so impressed with is going to be left sitting one upon the other. 
And at the time that Jesus made that declaration and gave that prophecy, those words of Jesus seemed crazy. Nothing could have seemed more sure than that temple. Even if another nation conquered uh, Palestine, or as it was known in those days, or conquered uh, Israel and defeated the Jewish people and defeated Rome and took control of that temple area and that temple mount, no one would have torn it down. They would have just turned it into the worship of some other god or they would have turned it into some governmental center. Nobody would have destroyed. Even in the minds of of even the disciples, if this city were sacked, nobody would destroy that thing. They would simply redetermine what it was going to be used for. And yet Jesus said, not one stone left upon another. And to them it was inconceivable, just outside the realm of possibility. And yet, that's exactly what happened in 70 A.D., less than 40 years after Jesus made the promise and gave the prophecy. In 66 A.D., after enduring a long series of provocations by foolish Roman governors that Rome was sending to Israel and to Jerusalem specifically, insensitive to the sensitivities, the religious sensitivities of the Jews. Finally, the Jews hit a place where they had had enough. And in 66 A.D., they rose up in a rebellion against Rome. And they wiped out a small Roman garrison that was in the city of Jerusalem. And then as they wiped out that garrison, the Roman forces that were in nearby Syria, hearing about the plight of their fellow soldiers, then sent out a larger force uh, toward Jerusalem, and the Jewish insurgents defeated them as well and accomplished two things. It filled the mind of the Jewish people who were done with Roman rule, at least they wanted to be done with it, It gave them the false idea that they could defeat Rome. And so people, the ranks of the zealots among the Jews, I mean, it swelled. They they began a peasant army, an army now to fight against Rome. And they had the idea, we can defeat them. But what it did in Rome is what they did was basically they poked Rome in the eye with a stick And Rome couldn't allow Israel to fall because of a rebellion because their entire empire would have disintegrated if they had allowed that to happen. And so ultimately, the shockwaves that went through the Roman Empire, Romans came to Israel in force to put down this rebellion and they came as brutal as you could be and ultimately 60,000 heavily armed, highly professional and experienced troops began their invasion of Israel from the north in the Galilee and ultimately 100,000 Jews were either killed or sold into slavery in the Galilee region before they ever got to Jerusalem. Didn't you fast forward to 70 A.D. when the Jewish rebellion was now concentrated in its final resistance in the city of Jerusalem and more specifically in the area of the temple. And a Roman governor by the name of Titus was brought in with the 12th, the 5th, and the 10th Roman legions to lead an assault on Jerusalem. These were very elite Roman troops. The siege that they laid against the city of Jerusalem was a very messy affair. Uh, The Jews were fierce fighters. They engaged in what we would call guerrilla warfare today. There were so many Roman losses as they attempted to find ways to penetrate the city. I mean, Roman blood everywhere outside of the city. Roman bodies. And as the and the effect that it had upon the Roman soldiers as they just went through this long, discouraging siege of the city and the attempt to break through and the loss of so many friends and such high casualties that by the time they broke through the walls of Jerusalem, they were just bloodthirsty. Titus could not control his troops any longer at that point in time. They went in and they killed anything that moved that wasn't in a Roman uniform. 
It didn't matter if it was a man or a woman or a child. Everybody got slaughtered. And it's, we're told by Josephus, the Jewish historian, that over a million Jews died in that reconquest of Jerusalem by Rome. And when it became apparent uh, to Titus and, and really to anyone, the Roman forces also to the Jewish forces, that victory was inevitable for the Romans, Titus sent uh, people to the Jews, to their leadership, he pleaded with them to surrender. He offered them terms of, of surrender. He did not want to go in and slaughter them. He knew what would happen once they breached the walls of the cities. He even invited them to come out into an open area to fight so that the city of Jerusalem would not be destroyed and so that the temple itself would not be destroyed because he knew they would make their last stand at Herod's temple. He didn't want to defile the temple, even ceremonially, much less destroy it. And his offer was refused by the Jews. And when the Roman soldiers got through, Titus had begged and, and given orders that the temple would not be harmed in any way. And yet when they broke through, Roman soldiers began to set the temple on fire. And the fire burned so hot that it melted all of the gold that was used in the building of the temple and that gold then seeped down into the cracks between these great stones. And because the Roman soldiers were paid not only a wage by Rome, but a part of their wages was the spoils of any city that they would conquer, the Roman soldiers proceeded to knock every stone one off of the other in order to get to the gold found in between. And Jesus' prophecy was perfectly fulfilled. Not one stone left upon another. And what Jesus now goes on to declare to the disciples, essentially, in the rest of Matthew chapter 24, is that what was true of that ancient temple will also be true of this world that we live in one day. The great tendency on our part to look at this world, to say, look at the stones that makes it up, that this world is permanent, that it's going to be forever, that it's going to outlive the ages, that it's going to be, it, it, go on forever and ever. And, and like that temple, there's that idea that the world and even us as disciples, his disciples would look at the world and say, come on, this place is never going to come to an end. We'll always farm this ground. You can't tell me Rome is going to come to an end or London is going to come to an end. New York City is going to come to an end. Moscow is going to come to an end. Rio de Janeiro is going to come to an end. All of the world is one day going to come to an end. As, as fully and completely as that temple came to an end. And yet just as Jesus calmly revealed the future of the temple to His disciples, so too... He calmly declared to us the future of the world that we live in and that one day it will come to an end and it will give way to a rapture of His church and a seven-year period of tribulation followed by a thousand-year reign of His on this earth that will ultimately give way to a new heaven and a new earth. And why will this world that we live in one day give way as fully as that ancient temple did because this world is built upon the same things that that ancient Jerusalem and temple were built upon rebellion against God and rejection of His Son. And as Jesus looks at this world which still impresses too many of His disciples He tells us not to be too impressed one day not one stone will be left upon another. Peter put it this way, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. 
And therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. And nevertheless, we, according to His promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. John wrote in the same vein, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For what is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. And, but he who does the will of God abides forever. And the temple looks so sure, it looks so strong to the naked eye, but as God looked at it, he saw it trembling. And this world looks so sure and it looks so strong as if history is just going to go on forever and ever and ever as it always has. And the Lord looks at it with a perfect calmness and says, it isn't true, one day it's going to collapse. And that's why we're told not to invest our lives supremely in this world but in the world to come. And then notice in verses 3 through 8 that Jesus then declared that there would be specific signs that would indicate the end of the age, that the end of the age was drawing near. And thus the rapture of the church followed by the seven-year tribulation period and, and his second coming. Notice the questions that the disciples ask of Jesus in verse 3. They asked, when will these things be? In other words, when will be the destruction of this temple? And then they asked, what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now I want you to notice in verse 6, because it appears that Jesus largely ignores the first question having to do with the physical destruction of the temple, and he focuses on the second question having to do with the end of the age in his second coming, because notice he says, you will hear of wars, rumors of wars, see that you are not troubled, for all these things must come to pass, but the end is not yet. He's answering supremely their final two questions. And so Jesus speaks to them in verses 4 through 8 and describes the things that are going to characterize the world immediately before the rapture of, the, of Christians and then the tribulation period. That's fascinating that he likens these signs of the coming you know, end of the age related to the world. He likens these things to birth pangs in verse 8. All these are the beginning of sorrows. That beginning of sorrows in the King James and the New King James, they, they translate it this way, and I'm not criticizing their translation, but they translate it that way to kind of be helpful to us. But literally, what, the, what these beginning of sorrows, literally it means the beginning of birth pangs, labor pains, He's talking about the pain that accompanies childbirth. We talk about birth pangs today. We don't call them birth pangs. We say, you know, how close are your birth pangs? We don't say that. We say, how close are your contractions now? But it's all talking about the same thing. And when a woman is giving birth to a baby, there are two great truths about the contractions that she experiences. Number one, they become more frequent as time goes on and number two they become more and more intense and what Jesus is doing here in likening these events to birth pangs or to contractions he's not saying that these signs have never occurred in human history he's not saying that they haven't been heavily represented in human history sometimes people they they dismiss Jesus is you know, these things that Jesus is talking about here with a wave of the hand, and they say, well, this has happened. these things have happened all the way through human history. That's not what he's talking about. He's not saying that the, these things haven't always happened. What he's saying is that as the end draws near, they will occur with a greater frequency and with a greater intensity. That's what he's saying. 
And then notice the signs of the birth pangs themselves. Verses 4 through 8. He said and began in verses 4 and 5 by talking about the religious deception that would come upon the world in the latter times. Many will come in my name, Jesus said, saying, I am the Christ and will deceive many. So at the end of the age is going to be marked by great spiritual deception and is going to be marked by a large number of spiritual deceivers. I don't know how many people read anymore. They have bookstores still. You go into a bookstore today and you see what are the top 25 that are being read or the books that are heavily uh, kind of displayed as you walk in and you look at how many of those books are spiritual in nature. They're not, not spiritual in the way that it's defined by the Word of God, but they're spiritual in nature. The person doesn't have to call themselves a guru. They don't have to call themselves a mystic. They don't have to call themselves a messiah or anything like that to, by their own actions in the writing of these things, in the communicating of these things on PBS or wherever you want to see it, and they stand up and they say, I have the answer to your emptiness. I have the answer to the problems in your life. Become my disciple. I can lead you out of those problems. I can lead you into the meaning of life, the purpose of life. This kind of thing is going on all around us. And it's interesting that Jesus begins with this birth pang first. And before he ever addresses, you know, wars and disease and famine. And the reason that he addresses this first, the spiritual deception that will come upon the world in the last days, is the consequences of falling prey to a spiritual deception is eternal. As terrible as wars are, as terrible as famine is, as terrible as earthquakes are, the consequences of them at least are limited to the temporal realm. A spiritual deception is something that will outlive this life and will determine where I spend eternity. If you aren't a Christian yet this morning, it's very important that you don't allow yourself to be spiritually deceived as you witness the destabilization of the world today. And that's what happens when the world gets shaking like a top, you know, and it starts to get real wobbly and all. People begin to look to uh, leaders to lead them out, uh, spiritual teachers to lead them out. And so people get desperate in a way that they haven't been desperate before, and it makes them vulnerable to glom onto anyone who is saying anything as long as they're saying it with enough confidence and authority. This is a funny thing. It reminds me of, of uh, uh, I think, of Jesus' ministry in terms of the United States. And, and uh, when Jesus began his public ministry and he went back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he began to teach. And as he's teaching in the synagogue, it's just a, it's a jaw-dropping moment. They begin to ask one another, all these religious leaders he grew up with, and they said, who in the world taught him letters? Where did he get a knowledge of the law and the prophets like that? Where did he get the wisdom and the teaching and the application of the law and the prophets like that? They knew it didn't come from them. He was far surpassed where they were. And they said, isn't he the carpenter's son? And we know his mother and his brothers and his sisters. And they rejected him on the basis of that. They rejected him on the basis of a supposed familiarity that they had with Jesus. They thought they knew Jesus. They didn't know anything about Jesus. And I think of how many people in the United States of America, maybe in this room, which is why I'm spending time on it today, Raised around the things of the Lord, aunts, uncles, grandparents, parents, brothers, sisters, friends who knew the Lord, know the Lord, walk with the Lord, exposed to the name of Christ, the gospel, salvation, knew it from a childhood, but we look at it and we say, no, that's too, 
That's too common. It's too familiar in the United States. I don't want to say that I'm a mere Christian and be scorned. I want to follow some exotic guru. And so we fly to the other side of the world and we climb mountains and we do crazy things so that we can be one of the elite and people can ooh and ah when we mention what we're into spiritually. And then one day when everything crashes and burns, we realize that the truth was right under our nose in the person of Jesus Christ. You know the beautiful thing about Him? Is He's so patient to be right there waiting for us when we've been a numbskull for so long. Am I calling you a numbskull? Maybe. I was a numbskull for a few years. Spiritual deception is to be feared more than wars and diseases and famine and earthquakes because Jesus said, don't fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. And when Jesus speaks of it in verse 5 and then later again in verse 11, there's the repetition in this terms of this spiritual deception. There's a word that I hate to see associated with spiritual deception, but it's repeated in each of those verses, and it's the word many. Despite his warning, many people will be deceived by these gurus. And then he said, number two, there'll be wars and rumors of wars. Do I have to tell you all about the wars that are going on around the world? In the Middle East and Africa... Radical Islam is fighting a war against the whole wide world, but because the whole wide world doesn't understand religion very good, they don't recognize it for the war that it is. So I'm not going to get it. I don't need to tell you that wars fill the world that we live in today. And then Jesus said, and I think it's very interesting in verse 7, he said, nation will rise against nation, and then significantly, kingdom against kingdom. There'll be actual wars where identifiable nations will fight one another. This country fights this country. That's war as we've understood it historically. But he said in the last days you're going to have rebellions and revolutions and factions within countries that will destroy those countries. And you look at most of Africa, well, I won't say most, but certainly where the hot spots are in northern and, and eastern Africa, I mean, this is the whole way that it is. You've got these fights within the countries for control of the countries and millions and tens of millions of people starving to death as a result of it and as a result of the violence. Think about what we've seen in just the last few years the number of armies that have been formed that have no allegiance to any one nation. They are a nation unto themselves. They are an army and a nation that inhabit vast portions of the world. These armies that, like Jesus is talking about, they include the terrorists, they include the Taliban, they include Al-Qaeda, they include the drug cartels. Look at South America, look at Central America, look at how the precarious those governments are because of the power and the corruption of the drug money and the violence of those leaders. Robert Kaplan wrote, a article in the Atlantic Monthly, February 1994, and it's called The Coming Anarchy. So we're talking about 15 years ago. One of the best things I've ever read in my entire adult life. And he described 15 years ago the world that you and I live in today as he watched it geopolitically and resources and all this kind of thing that was happening and what we've seen unfold in the last five years. He said, a large number of people on this planet to whom the comfort and the stability of a middle class life is utterly unknown, unknown find war and a barracks existence a step up rather than a step down. 
since the end of the Cold War, which was a miserable existence for hundreds of millions of people in this world. I don't minimize it, but the one thing that it did do was the standoff before the so between the Soviet Union and the United States is it gave that kind of it gave a kind of stability that kept this broader unraveling happening around the world that we're seeing today. One expert on these things stated that the future of the world will be characterized by, I quote, warrior societies operating, in fact it's the same, Robert Kaplan, warrior societies operating at a time of unprecedented resource scarcity and planetary overcrowding. He further says, henceforth the map of the world, 15 years ago, henceforth the map of the world will never be static. This future map, in a, in a sense, the last map will be an ever-mutating representation of chaos. Non-believer who's willing to look at the world and assess it for what it is. And I don't need to talk this morning, I think, about nuclear weapons, the problems with, with uh, Vietnam today, or North Korea rather, and, and Iran and the headlines, Venezuela, now they want to develop those weapons. Libya wants to, Iraq is wanting to talk, is talking about the same thing, and who knows where all of this goes. And increasingly you have these nations and these groups of people that are unidentifiable nations that are these roving armies united by an ideology and, and unwilling to submit in any way to any kind of pressure, international included. He talks about famine in verse 7, famine over large parts of the world even today, talks about, verse 7, pestilence, which refers to disease. We could talk about the West Nile and AIDS and Ebola and smallpox and TB and diphtheria, all of these making great, large comebacks. And the thing that scares the health officials today is how we have, in a desire to protect people's individual freedoms have not made sure that they have used their antibiotics properly and have turned a lot of these bugs into super bugs versions of these the medical professional because there is no money right now in developing further antibiotics the money is found in I guess Viagra or whatever other kind of recreation kind of things or whatever their focus is that there's no research and development in the way that a sane world would invest its money in research and development in the light of the things that we face and you have medical professionals who look and say it is just one day these bugs are going to cross a line and we have nothing to touch them that's the world we live in you think about what comes next, not even counting what we've identified as bugs. And then earthquakes in various places. Verse 7, as Jesus talks and, and the earthquake, the movement of the earth, the kind of top shimming and all kinds of movement, the experts that look at this say it. it, it unparalleled in human history the amount of earthquakes the size of the earth earthquakes the odd places in which these earthquakes are happening in the world today let me close with some application on it essentially what Jesus is telling us is that as the rapture of the church nears things are going to grow worse and worse in this world this world is going to seriously unravel on every level. It will begin to destabilize spiritually. It will destabilize politically. It will destabilize materially. It will destabilize physically. And so that's why we see these things increasing before our eyes today. 
because it's like the contractions associated with childbirth. These crises are coming faster and harder until those of you who can bear to watch the news anymore and keep up with it realize that there is hardly any space of time between the end of one crisis and the beginning of the other. In fact, all of it is beginning to overlap at this point. And yet in the midst of this, notice in verse 6, Jesus says a curious things to us, a thing to us as his disciples. He said, see that you're not troubled. You could almost laugh. Some of you are saying, I, I'm terrified at the moment. Had a perfectly good breakfast. Two wonderful cups of French roast before I came. Was looking forward to some free grazing at Costco after church. <laughs> Pastor, you have no idea how you've brought me down in this whole sermon of yours. And yet Jesus said, curiously enough, he said, see that you are not troubled. And the word troubled could easily be translated alarmed, disturbed, startled, terrified. So that raises the question, how in the world can a person live in a world like this and not be troubled? That's the question. And for the answer to that, we have to return to Jesus' reminder that all of these things are birth pangs. It would be a cruel and terrible thing if women went through birth pangs or contractions simply for the sake of going through birth pangs. But they don't. It is the joy of the birth of that child that makes the birth pangs worth it. And so it is with the kingdom of God, all of these birth pangs occurring in the world around us all day, every day, simply reveal to us that the rapture is getting very, very close. And that is what these world events are intended to communicate to us as Christians through all of this, something glorious and wonderful is about to be birthed. And in the meantime, we're to be faithful to the Lord and the Lord will be faithful to us every one of His promises as all of it is unfolding. We see these things and we realize, Lord, the birth of Your kingdom into this world is getting very, very close. And just as Jesus very quietly and calmly explained to the disciples what would become of the temple. And all of it was fulfilled. So too, He very, very calmly reveals to us what will become of this fallen world that we live in. Why could He be so calm? Why could He be so at peace because he was not invested in anything ultimately and supremely physical in this world what he was invested in was spiritual and would not be interrupted by these events And he tells us that this is going to be the way that the world is in the last days. So that our hearts are not set on this world. And when these things come to pass, they terrify us. Instead, we're to see these events occur and realize that we're to look up. Our redemption draws nigh the return of Jesus for His church. Now this can just be a sermon. The way you just get up from, walk out of this room, 
and continue to fret and worry about every trend, spiritual, physical, material, in this world and have it not change us. I think sometimes we look at the Word of God and especially when what God talks about, the condition of the world in the last days and somehow we want these sermons to be fashioned in such a way that you will reassure me that I will not have to face any of those difficulties as a Christian. But someday, some group of Christians are going to be called to live for Christ in that environment. And when I look at the signs of what Jesus said are the marks of the world at the time of his return for the church, the rapture of the church, Israel back in the land, the geopolitical situation of the Middle East fully in place as God has prophesied it, Europe in a place now to become the dominant economic and ultimately military uh, influence in the world if they only had the right uh, leader, and, and the world fragmenting before our eyes, becoming more and more unstable on all levels, religiously, politically, materially, and, and militarily. That's going to hit... That's going to hit some generation where there will be no amount of positive talk or massaging of the Scriptures to say that that's going to be maybe our children or our grandchildren. This could be our world. And it's the world we do live in. How far developed is it going to be before Jesus comes back? I don't know. And so we're going to have a choice. I am either going to allow the events of the world to bludgeon me every day, to toss me to and fro every day, to terrify me every single day, or I'm going to walk out of a room like this at some point in time in my Christian walk where I'm going to say to God, God, I don't want this world to have that kind of a hold on me. I want as these things unfold to be a reminder in my spirit that you are at the door and about to return. And Lord, I cannot do that in my own strength. I cannot positive confession my way into that. I can't positive think myself into that. I ask for a work of Your Holy Spirit in my life that processes the world that I live in in that way. And the Bible says that if we ask anything in accordance with His will, we can know that we will have what we've asked for. And so that's where we sit today. I'm not yelling at you. I'm yelling at the hold. that this world can have on us that it never had on Christ. And I know we want to be like Christ. And so today's a day, a reference point related to the Word of God. Say, Lord, this place is terrifying me. I don't want to live a life of terror. You said the conditions would be terrifying to a thinking, observing person. I get that. The leap that I haven't taken yet is to have these things be a constant, instant reminder to me to look up and to realize it means your coming is very, very close. And that's what I want. And that's what he'll bless us with as we ask him for it. Let's stand together and we'll pray.